Welcome to the Classical Happy Hour. I'm your host, Martin Davids. This is the show where my guests and I talk about music while enjoying a tasty beverage. Then we try to play some music together. Today's guest is Jory Vinicor. How you doing, Jory? Hey, Marty. It's great to see you. It's nice uh, to see you, too. I'm glad you're back in town. Um, for my listeners that don't know that much about you, can you tell us what you're doing for work these days? What am I doing for work? Well, I'm a harpsichordist principally. Uh, right at the moment, I'm preparing for a recital at the Ravinia Festival. That'll be uh, Saturday, 2nd September at 2, playing solo works of Johann Sebastian Bach and Jean-Philippe Rameau. Awesome. And various other activities, if you want to hear about them as we continue <laughs> talking. Okay, so I've never met anyone that started music as a harpsichordist. So did you, or did you start on some other instrument? By no means. Uh, I think in this country, even today, very difficult just to sort of find a harpsichord. And, oh, you know, that would be interesting. I started, as um, many do, on the piano, took lessons seriously, but discovered a love for harpsichord music, Baroque music, very early on, was itching to discover the instrument, did not know any locals here in Chicago. I think of like David Schrader, who was already playing, but I think I didn't have the wherewithal to figure out how to meet such a such a guy. Um, and the moment I went away to conservatory at uh, Peabody in Baltimore, literally the first day of school, I knocked on the door of the harpsichord teacher at the school and added harpsichord lessons to my uh, schedule. Nice. So. You knew about the harpsichord then? Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't. Well, when you say know about it, there is a great deal to know. <laughs> I, I discovered and adored the uh, recordings of Wanda Landowska, but it took me quite some time to figure out that what she is playing doesn't so much resemble a harpsichord as composers of the Baroque would have known one, but is another creation. And notwithstanding, I still adore her playing and her recordings. So, yeah, I learned quite a bit once my experience was more hands-on. Cool. So, I mean, I it's quite possible for people to grow up playing the violin and yet not know about Baroque violin. Sure. And I think I was mostly in that camp, even though my uncle gave me some... Uh, tape of Edward Melchus or something. Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> my, the, you mentioned Edward Melchus, who's a Viennese uh, violinist. My very beloved harpsichord teacher, Huguette Dreyfus, played extensively with Melchus as a, a, a duo partner. And in fact, a very dear friend of mine who just produced a five-part biography of Huguette Dreyfus interviewed Melchus, who is very elderly, a little bit fragile, but still living and and uh, lucid and with it in his Viennese apartment. Still rocking the long hair. I don't know if he's rocking the long hair. I've not seen a photo of the gentleman, but apparently witty and delightful and, uh, yeah. So, but you had it on your mind to, to, to learn this instrument from early on? I did have it on my mind. There was a great curiosity about it. Um, and I think, Marty, once I began college years. So Peabody as a pianist transferred over to Manus College in New York after a couple of years. I think I was following a kind of a magnetic pull towards harpsichord and uh, period instrument practice. Oh yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind, but I don't mind if we do. 
Mm. Yeah. So, um, although I love most of my piano studies and encountered a, a couple of extraordinary and unforgettable teachers, Anne Schein and at Peabody, she was a pupil of Arthur Rubinstein and herself just an unbelievable pianist, and Nina Svetlanova in New York. Uh, and she was very important to me because she kind of encouraged me along my road to the harpsichord, where I think some teachers may have kind of uh, put some cards in the spokes, you know. So, so, but I think there was a kind of a straight, straight line to doing that. And I can say that I was able to switch my focus when the president of Manus College was able to offer me a scholarship uh, for my master's degree to focus on harpsichord. But, and that seemed, uh, seemed to me like a pretty good deal. Yeah, if it's free, why wouldn't you do it? Well, if you weren't interested. For me, that was the kind of vindication that I needed that I already wanted to go over to that instrument, but, but wondered 35 or 40 years ago, about 40 years ago, what does one do with it? What can I do professionally? But to have my schooling paid for, I thought, well, this is a great way of finding out exactly what I can do with it. For sure. So you ended up in New York and you got a master's. Yeah. Did you yes. go anywhere else for, um, your, for your schooling? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I uh, finished up a master's in harpsichord at Manus College, went for a couple of years of postgrad at uh, Rutgers in the most beautiful, oh yes, <laughs> beautiful city of New Brunswick. Some irony there, although <laughs> there were a couple of nice buildings. Uh, adored my harpsichord teacher, speak of her often, Charlotte Maddox. She's been teaching for numerous years at uh, U of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Um, and got myself scholarships, uh, Fulbright, and one from another foundation, the BB Foundation, to go off to Paris. And I was sad to say goodbye to Charlotte Maddox after two years. I think she was sad to say goodbye to me, but it was a great opportunity. So, so I went off to Paris. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great to have a Fulbright. It, it was a good thing. <laughs> Even with the American dollar at a very low point, it was still a good thing. Having a second scholarship allowed me to survive that year. Nice. So um, were you just doing harpsichord in Paris? Yes. So um, I think for Fulbrights and music, you do have to have a focus. And there was nothing else I intended to do in terms of uh, studies. So I had studies with two different teachers, really of the older generation. I mentioned Huguette Dreyfus, um, who is in her last two years of teaching. You are surely aware that in France, there is an, a very strictly enforced mandatory retirement. So if- Didn't they just riot over that? That's another, <laughs> I think another podcast and the, no longer the classical happy hour. It does not concern uh, schools, music or otherwise. It concerns the public sector, and if I'm not mistaken, I, and all of your listeners are going to correct me, I think for the public sector, um, a mandatory retirement was raised from 62 to 64. For teaching, it's been at 67 for quite some time, um, and that didn't change. So I studied with Huguette at one of the, what we would call a national conservatory in France. That is not one of the big ones. There are these local schools which can vary in what they offer. So just outside of Paris, 
although she was also a teacher at the Superior Conservatory in Lyon and then at the Paris Superior Conservatory. I studied with Kenneth Gilbert, the great Canadian-born harpsichordist. Uh, I was a postgrad or a cycle de perfectionnement, if you like the term. I was his first foreign postgrad student at the Paris Conservatory, and both of them retired a after about two years that I was in France. You just killed them off, huh? I killed them <laughs> off. No, no, I was very, very fortunate to have these two wonderful teachers uh, at the sunset of their teaching careers and remain in touch with both of them until their passing. So you, you talk about them as, as though they're like the earlier generation. It is. They're kind of the pioneers, uh, along with Leonhardt, who certainly went on his own very, very unique path. Uh, but both Huguette uh, Refus and Gilbert also have their great importance in, in that rediscovery of the harpsichord and the uh, journey that the harpsichord made from Landowska's Prael, you know, these hybrid half pianos, half harpsichords, God knows what, going towards fairly faithful reproductions of historic instruments. Yeah, so I mean, kind of the knock on some early music people of like the later generations is that they just learn it like any other conservatory thing. There's of not the sense of discovery and that these early folks had. So studying with them, did they, you know, send you to read all the treatises? And not at all. No, and, um, you know, I, I confess to you with a drink in hand. Here's the drink in <laughs> hand and drink being drunk. Um, although, of course, I have familiarity with uh, treatises in part. I was never a great studier. That's not been my thing. I've been very, very geared towards performance all of my life, really. Um, but a lot of fascinating talks with both of those teachers. I did also get to encounter Leonhardt in master classes, which was also a tremendous pleasure. Um, and finding, again, three very important people of that older generation, how, how they ended up where they were, musically speaking. Um, yes. I mean, you do have to wonder whether Rameau was reading treatises himself. Rameau was or writing them. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think, I, I, I don't want to, to misquote a teacher who is no longer even here to, to correct my quote, but Kenneth Gilbert often implied that many of the treatises, not all, were not really geared at the higher level of professionals. They were kind of explaining things to... Um, novices, especially continual treatises in many cases, um, where the great composers Bach and so forth was, of course, teaching directly to his pupils how to figure bass, etc. Um, and Rameau, of course, writing more about harmony, so defending his own theories on harmonic work. It's hard to imagine a guy like Bach taking the time to write a book. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, between the 20 kids and uh, and the composing, yes. And the school. And the school and, and litigious letters with various uh, employers and so forth, yes. And getting his butt kicked by bassoonists. <laughs> oh my, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um. So, did you grow up in the Chicago area? Yeah, I was going to ask you actually the same, but you know, you're interviewing me. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Mount Prospect, Illinois, which is a northwest suburb. Uh, by my high school years, 
I was a student at what was the Music Institute of the North Shore, so we are actually basically in one of their buildings, but um, I studied in Winnetka uh, over in the Northeast, and my final year of high school at the suggestion of my very well-known piano teacher, Emilio del Rosario, I was actually a student at North Shore Country Day School, a very wonderful school. I'm going on a on an alum visit there tomorrow. Uh, graduated from North Shore Country Day. Um, it was kind of a marvelous last year. It really was a very special year in the Chicago area. Yeah. Yeah, so, and the Music Institute has a campus there now, right? Yeah, they still do. Okay. At the time I was a student, I managed to have three years of study, uh, never even thinking about what were the grounds behind the music building, what were those other very pretty buildings. And then, of course, when I was a student in high school, there was a level of cooperation, of cooperation, I beg your pardon, English is my you know first language. Um, so there was cooperation, but I think that the cooperation became an actual um, integration. I think the Music Institute in Winnetka is integrated into North Shore Country Day. I do not know how that has developed to our day. I'm sure the people who are having me visit tomorrow will explain that to me. I hope you enjoy your visit. Um, I'm sure I will. <laughs> so are you? did you grow up in a musical family? I grew up in a music-loving family. Uh, my a uh, wonderful and eccentric father was a dentist who played a bit of violin and a musical saw, although that's traumatic, so I would prefer not to speak of his musical saw, but he, he was delightful. Did he use the same bow? No. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, certainly not, certainly not. Um, he loved classical music. I was a frequent uh, attendee at Orchestra Hall, piano series, many years the general music series so heard a number of the great violinists um, numerous concerts of the Chicago Symphony with Schulte and so forth so it's kind of wonderful um, and the thing I didn't get too much of although he enjoyed it was opera uh, that took a little bit of time and I think I never attended one of the main uh, operas here or elsewhere with my father hmm. so he was more than supportive of your studies. More, absolutely. And um, speaking from one hopefully, you know, spoiled and loved Jewish boy to another, um, <laughs> my father was absolutely thrilled that I was going to be a musician. I mean, I, I wouldn't say my parents were thrilled that I was taking lessons. They they offered no alternative. <laughs> I, the you know, streets <laughs> I, 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 we have to talk about that sometime my father was very very supportive and a, a very wise man he brought his three kids up alone from a very very early time uh, he was widowed when I was four so I think he had to have the kind of maternal instinct of knowing what the children wanted and being a good father and shepherding us a bit and he knew that I was not going to go into anything academically inclined. Yeah well my parents certainly didn't insist on a career in music but I had to learn an instrument. Mm -hmm. um, so you uh, you grew up here moved to New York and I, then I moved to Baltimore for yeah two Baltimore years. yeah um, that's not New York but um, they have wonderful wonderful cockroaches as I discovered <laughs> sorry Peabody's Martin. still still in Baltimore Peabody <laughs> and Peabody I will say I have visited a few years ago one of the most beautiful schools in 
the world. That is for sure, especially the great, great, great work they did, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, kind of jaw-dropping. So it was fun to go visit. Uh, and still, uh, you can still learn harpsichord there. Yes, yes, yes. Adam Pearl is a fine, fine musician and teacher, and he is there. I think that's a benediction for the school. Um, I went off to New York Manus College, which is such a peculiar little institution. Um, tiny school at, at my time. They occupied three brownstones on the Upper East Side, moved in the middle of my first year to a less interesting but more spacious building on the Upper West Side, probably, again, 150-some-odd undergraduates, pupils, and I think Manus has moved again. I think they're downtown and, um, and absorbed into the new school. I've not had much to do with them. I think classical music has become a little less important to them, which is unfortunate. Hmm. Um, certainly a lot of uh, great musicians have come out of there, though. Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. Um, so uh, what do you think? Do you think, like, New York or Paris had a big influence on you as a musician? You know, I, I think so, because as I gradually became more involved in the harpsichord and performing early music. Paris, even in 1990 when I moved there, had a very, very rich early music scene. So uh, famous uh, ensembles, uh, William Christie and his Les Arts Florissants. Um, I became very involved pretty early on with Mark Minkowski and Les Musiciens de Louvre. Uh, played with them kind of all over the world, recorded a bunch with them, also played and recorded with uh, William Christian Les Arts Florissants. So there is such a rich scene. It's very, very, very difficult to duplicate that anywhere in the States. Although I think, obviously, you are doing very interesting uh, things in early music, Craig Trumpeter in Haymarket here in Chicago. But the support of government and so forth is not similar. I can't be, cannot be similar. Uh, so we see maybe wealthier pockets of early music like in, in the Bay Area or in Boston, and even these uh, are very dependent on their generous donors. And I think in France, we do see a basic structural support for ensembles. Some come and go naturally, but um, it's a rich scene. For sure, yeah. Um, so... If you didn't do music, what would you want to do? You know, it's a great question. And again, one that I'd love to turn around on you while I have yet another (laughs) sip of uh, delicious scotch. Thank you. Um, I honestly don't think there is anything that I would or could. I really do truly believe that. I think I'm absolutely born to do this. Very little else. I mean, of course, I get great enjoyment out of life and, you know, movies and friends and all of this but as my uh, profession music very certainly is the uh, overwhelming occupation for me yeah I mean it's it's hard to beat it (laughs) (laughs) so so I'm I'm preaching to the Jewish choir here (laughs) right (laughs) sorry in terms of the the thrills the I don't know, just the feeling of, of working with other great people. Yes. Earning their respect. I, I mean, the, the, everything, the interpersonal relations, when they're, 
when they're positive and wonderful, when they're fraught and difficult, because of course it's not not always a bed of roses. No. Um, but I think it is so very rich in, in possibilities for us. And the music itself. That's right, and the, the music itself is absolutely uh, soul nourishing. It really is. Yeah, even if not everything else is going well, sometimes on when you get on stage, things are pretty awesome. I thoroughly <laughs> share your, your thoughts on that. Yes. So, uh, like, what else would you say you love about being a musician? I do enjoy traveling. I'm still doing a lot of it at my age, which is, you know, interesting as we go by sometimes that aspect of our career. If, if we're a freelance musician, as I am, can sort of dissipate. Um, at other times, I think that's insane and tiring, but I do like that. I like getting to uh, go all around the place. Um, I certainly like uh, encountering new instruments to perform on, although occasionally uh, with nail-biting nerves about what I'm going to get at any given moment for any given engagement. Yeah, that's a problem I don't have. Your violin <laughs> goes with you. I can just carry it around. No, I, I think you might remember that I had, uh, during my Chicago years, I had a beautiful harpsichord. You must have seen it at least oh, yeah. once you came over to my that's it, place. Yeah. And, um, you know, it came to me in Chicago in around 2015 at tremendous expense. And it went back to France about a year ago at uh, two times that expense. So I would say that my harpsichord does not travel with me uh, beyond local venues at this point. Yeah, well, at least you haven't fallen into the trap that many harpsichordists have where they just, it's like they're hoarders. <laughs> can barely walk through their place with all the harpsichords. So do you mean like somebody who would have, say, 12 instruments in their apartment, like me? <laughs> oh, so you have fallen into this. <laughs> I, I mean, just, just for a beginning, when you enter my apartment, and I live now in, let's say, remote parts of France. I'm not in Paris. I'm in a, a small city in Burgundy. You enter my apartment. There are the two big revival harpsichords. So there is a pleel. And my partner, Philippe, owns another revival instrument, which is 10 feet long and almost as wide as a concert grand piano. Um, so two of those, I have the instrument that you encountered in Chicago. I have a very similar instrument uh, by the English maker David Rubio. I have a, an Italian instrument from Clyde Parmelee, an American, which must be 40 years old. Um, I have a clavichord. Uh, we have a concert Bersendorfer from 1846, a concert Erau from 1843, a couple of pianos on their sides waiting for restoration before I'm 95. Uh, yeah. So, so do you have like LED lighting to for the path in between these? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> like I'm, an airplane. You, you do joke, <laughs> but I, I'm very fortunate. Very, very, very fortunate that since 10 years, um, when my partner and I decided to leave Paris, where indeed those LED lights wouldn't even have been visible between the instruments, I think I slept under my Playel harpsichord <laughs> for about a good five years, if not much more. Um, 
there is room and it actually looks like a very lovely and civilized apartment occupied by professional keyboard players. Nice. But yes, it, it is very nice and I do hope you're going to come to visit me at some point That'd be on your next French visit. <laughs> so are you uh, teaching anywhere? I don't uh, teach in a school setting. I had a, a national teaching job in the city where I now live in chalon sur saone and I explained very briefly that in France, high musical education, so uh, the equivalent of any of our hundreds or thousands of universities here, uh, to, to obtain a bachelor master's, that's Paris and Lyon Superior Conservatories. And then we have a series of national schools of varying wealth and sizes and possibilities. Chalon-sur-Saône in, in Burgundy is actually one of the biggest in the country, and I taught there from 93 to 99. So well before I knew you, I have not taken again that type of teaching job, and I am now getting to be long in the tooth to even think about such a thing because I would be subject to mandatory retirement. But I do a lot of private teaching. I do a certain amount of teaching at uh, courses. So I'm flying a few hours after my Ravignacidal. I go to Geneva and then on to a village, Prangin in Switzerland, where I teach for a week. So I have a couple of opportunities like this, and I love it. And I must say, uh, when I did teach at a French school, I liked teaching from the ground up. You asked about uh, uh, children, young musicians starting on harpsichord. Well, I had you know, a class filled with quite a few of those. The kids would visit the school. They would uh, hear and see the various instruments, violin, trumpet, whatever, harpsichord. And yeah, a couple of them think, oh, I, I really like that. <laughs> so it was kind of amazing. Yeah, that would be great. I think, you know, my kids have been exposed to the harpsichord, but I certainly wasn't seeing one growing up. No, 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 nor did I. I was hearing them occasionally on the record and, uh, and again, truly, truly itching to see it. But uh, as I mentioned, going to Orchestra Hall every week, not necessarily the best place to see one. Or hear one. I mean, or that hear, place is gigantic. Goodness. And I, I remember a concert of I Musici, who I'm sure you remember. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, your, your expression said everything. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we won't comment on that. And I was going nuts with excitement because the program was going to feature a Bach harpsichord concerto. And the performer was playing what I now know to be like a very small, I think a Neupert instrument. It was inaudible and the little bit that one could hear, one wishes one couldn't. Um, so that befuddled me and disappointed me greatly. Yeah. Well, it's like some of these uh, classical guitar concertos where you just can't even hear them unless you put a microphone on them, right? Some clever amping does a good job. Yeah, and I, I do remember hearing Segovia at Orchestra Hall, and yeah, I'm in one of the great musical moments that I've attended. And he filled the hall. I'm sure it was a bit amped, but not to the point that it did not sound like a beautiful and and sonorous, rich acoustic instrument. Yeah, and the, those Bach concertos. I mean, they really sound best with like one on a part. You know, they really do. And even standing behind the harpsichords, I would it can say. be interesting. And I mean, whether performing or listening, it's sort of a confluence of 
of good chance when you can really have the situation to hear the instrument well in a correct space, but it has occurred. It has occurred. I remember accompanying Philippe to Leipzig a million years ago, and uh, he was a prize winner at the Bach Leipzig, and the finalists played a beautiful new instrument in a wonderful um, hall. I think it's the Old Town Hall. The orchestra was not one on a part, but obviously tutti soli, and each of the finalists, you could hear perfectly the interplay between. Then I think, now how the heck, what kind of perfect acoustic, which favors the harpsichord just a bit. I don't know. I haven't found many of them. Yeah. But that, those are good Watch pieces. They are wonderful pieces. Okay. Um, do you have any advice for people that are... <laughs> hmm. I need another. Let me take a gulp of the drink. I mean, you're still going, so you must have learned something. I, I, yes, yes, yes. I, I mean, it's actually a, it's a fabulous question on many levels. And I, I mean, of course, the advice is to, to practice hard. Um, you have to have, I think, one has to have the good luck of having a teacher who offers guidance, but also flexibility. I think uh, for the generation of musicians, even over the last 20 some odd years, the internet, YouTube is a precious facility. You're quite a bit younger than I am, um, but you still probably grew up there, you know, vinyl discs, right? When you were oh, a yeah. little kid, yeah, sure. And these days, of course, you don't need to go to your local library to take out the vinyl discs. You have, no matter where you are on the planet, infinite possibilities on YouTube. And I feel that a young musician or a young singer who doesn't take advantage of that is rather foolhardy, um, although you can't necessarily teach yourself through that. I think of advice given to me by Emilio de Rosario, by my piano teacher at the uh, Music Center, well, Music Institute of uh, the North Shore, who just said, when you are in college, play with the best musicians, play with the most interesting musicians. You learn a lot from that. I think one does. I've also thought over the years that we can learn quite a bit from teaching, whether we're teaching uh, kids, and as long as you have a you know young pupil who wishes to learn and you're reflecting, you're thinking about so many things to help that kid grew up to be more accomplished on his or her path. Um, and then I think I, I've had a, some good chance and, and taught some very, very advanced young professional musicians. And how do you, you know, open their horizons a little bit as well? So, and the idea of opening horizons, I think is an important one. We do try, you and I and everybody, to keep as much of an open mind as we're capable of keeping over the course of our career. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. And not always easy, not always easy. I think sometimes we can fall into a type of rut. Um, but again, I do have that in my mind to attempt to take a breath and hear what else is going on with younger performers, etc. Yeah, I mean, I I try to never lose my curiosity and my my joy in learning new things. That's a beautiful way of saying it, yeah. Uh, the, those two uh, things, curiosity and joy, are such a, 
great and fundamental component of uh, why we should be doing what we're doing. <laughs> okay, uh, so do you have anything cool coming up? Obviously, you're yeah. playing at Ravinia in a yeah, few days. Yeah, so I mean, Ravinia, of course, immensely cool and wonderful. I'm mean, speaking of a great concert hall to hear. Uh, Oh, I suppose any classical chamber music, including the harpsichord, that's a, is it Gordon Bennett Hall? Or is it Bennett Gordon? I always, please folks at Ravinia, forgive me, I can never remember which direction the names go. Um, and after that, I'll be teaching in a beautiful Swiss village near Lausanne for a week. Um, we're preparing a performance, mostly Handel, Daphne and Apollo, with some very, very, very gifted young people. Um, from there, I, I fly immediately to Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, leave the period instrument crowd, and we'll be playing with various musicians, uh, principals from orchestras here in the States, from Europe, um, a varied program. I'll even have a bit of my Rameau, Georgie Ligeti, as a soloist, play Fifth Brandenburg one on a part with these folks. So I think that's going to be pretty fun. And then before I finally get back to my place in Burgundy after a month and a half, I'll conduct Musica Angelica, which is a period instrument orchestra in L.A. I've been with them a few times over the last uh, 15 years now, so look forward to being with them. And we have a program of Bach and Sons. So there is Johann Christian Bernard, a kind of a French orchestral suite. Um, um, a young violinist, he is Thomas Iliev from New York, will play the E major concerto. I play Carl Philippe Emanuel Bach D minor, which is a fabulous keyboard concerto. Um, we play together the um, triple concerto, the A minor, flute, violin. The J.S. Bach, okay. J.S. Bach. And Stephen Schultz, a Baroque flutist, really venerable, wonderful musician, plays Wilhelm Friedman, a D major concerto, which is rarely, if ever heard, and it's a fabulous piece. It's just been published. WF so, Bach, as w opposed to WTF Bach. WTF Bach is one of my great, great, great favorites. PDQ, I also enjoy at times, but WF is a, a, a really remarkable composer. Yeah, and he's, he's a nice flute player, too. Um, yes, Stephen's a wonderful flute player. The concerto is very surprising and extraordinarily typical of this complex, very joyful, but very strangely complicated uh, polyphonic writing. From Even, someone named Bach? From, I agree, uh, just imagine <laughs> that. Um, but very pointillistic. There is a kind of a strange way that uh, Wilhelm Friedman trades off very short phrases among differing instruments, including the soloist. So unusual, and uh, I can't wait to uh, get to it. Well, it sounds like you're wrapping up the summer in a pretty exciting way. Thank you, yes. And uh, so finally, uh, is there anything you want to ask me? Oh, Marty, so where did you grow up? <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Downers Grove. I knew you did. Yes, yes, yes. I had cousins out in that area, Downers Grove, Aurora, uh, but Downers Grove particularly. And I, I mean, I have met you, of course, here in Chicago uh, through various organizations, maybe especially Haymarket Opera. Um, when did you start playing Baroque violin? In uh, when I was getting my master's at the University of Michigan. I, I so you studied modern violin at U of Michigan. 
I did, but uh, with whom? Uh, Stephen Ships, who's currently in prison. But uh, <laughs> oh boy, that yeah, that could lead us. I think I would need five of these. But yeah, we're not going to talk about that. But he did encourage uh, me to to sign up for the early music ensemble with Ed Parmentier. Wonderful. Which, uh, in addition to getting me playing Baroque violin, is where I met my wife. Also wonderful. And uh, then I, I had a lesson with Jaap Schroeder when he was in town, and uh, it was one of the most hilarious experiences I've ever had. Hilarious and positive? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I played a, about eight measures of the, the Art of Boeing by Tartini, which is, you know, that Gavotte by Corelli with 50 variations. I only played the theme, and then I, I stopped because I just knew he had something to say, and he said... I see you know nothing of Baroque violin. <laughs> Baroque violin. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's why I'm here, man. And did he teach you something of Baroque violin? A little bit, but uh, he also, I was at Penny Crawford's house, and uh, she had a couple of Baroque violins, and she let me borrow one. So I did, did what I could and then ended up at IU. At Indiana University? Yeah, with Stanley. And I assume that was a very interesting, yeah. uh, you know, a couple of years um, or more. Wonderful. And I know once in a while you still play modern violin. Oh, yeah. For certain gigging things. But you have a great preference for the Baroque violin. Yeah. And I, I love Baroque music so much. And you can't just can't get the kind of sounds out of a modern violin that you can get off those gut strings, you know? And which is, again, would lead me to a very similar feeling about my instrument. And once in a while, I'll be conversing with people. This happened yesterday, who will talk about great pianists, Glenn Gould or other. And, and with all respect, I think my eyes glaze over a little bit. And it's no longer a thing which compels me as a listener, although I do, of course, have tremendous admiration and love for a number of the great pianists of today and yesterday, but, but, yeah, but the sounds which draw me. There, you know, there is music that was written after that period that's also great. Naturally. And it's also quite nice to open up your case that hasn't been opened in a few weeks and your instrument is still in tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and speaking of still in tune, I, I mentioned that I own a playout harpsichord um, date to be determined at somewhere uh, depending on which catalog you read is either like 1939 or 1952-ish. Be that as it may, the instrument hasn't been tuned since about 1965 and it's still in tune <laughs> because it has uh, the most peculiar tuning system where the tuning pins are screwed into a metal plate and I do say screwed in not pointed in and it doesn't move <laughs> if I ever fully restored the instrument of course I would get tuned and the handful of times that I've played a play a harpsichord in my life to play Frank Martin or Poulenc uh, both pieces which have played a big role in my career yes one tunes the instrument but it's microscopic increments of tuning <laughs> 1965. Yeah, I mean, I, and I do mean 1965. It belonged to the defunct Lyon radio and has not been tuned since it left that institution. Can you imagine if you were just like 
laying on the floor since 1965 and you got out, you'd feel horrible. Right? I, but you tell me about it. <laughs> tell me about it. So, you know, the, the poor instrument finally got a cosmetic makeover because I felt, this is, must be 25 years ago, that it was literally ruining my apartment. It, it had yellowed. There were round holes drilled in the cheeks to put in padlocks at the time. And I thought, I can no longer look at the instrument. So so it looks beautiful. I will happily show you photos at any time you wish, but it's never been fully restored. I've, I've demonstrated it. I've shown it to various podcasts and so forth. But at this point in my life, I doubt if I would spend the resources to fully restore that instrument. And very, very sadly, the person who I might have chosen to restore it is no longer with us. And it is a very, very difficult creature to... Uh, treat. Yeah, it's got to be a dwindling list of Playel repairers. Very few. Okay, well, yeah. let's uh, wrap this part up. Um, I want to tell everyone thanks for listening. Please subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. If you listen on Stitcher, please try us on one of the other platforms as Stitcher is being discontinued in the next few days here. Uh, Please keep buying my stuff at uh, bachfor2.com. And we're going to take a little break here and come back and play some music. Mm-hmm.